Good. Uh, thank you for having me here today. Thank you, Pastor Roger, for leading us in the songs. It's just uh, really wonderful how that uh, helps to lead us into our message. I do thank the pastors for giving me this great privilege to come before you so that we can study the section in John's first epistle together. Uh, first of all, let me say how encouraged I am by your diligence in studying scripture. Please don't take for granted the liberty that we have to not only study the word, but to talk freely about it. There are still parts of the world today that scripture is banned, where believers are persecuted, arrested, discriminated against, driven underground, or worse. So it is indeed a great privilege for me to share with you some thoughts I ascertained in my study of the passage. I hope I do justice to this uh, wonderful section in scripture about loving one another. First of all, the world's view of love is warped. Uh, they think that love is a feeling. I love as long as that feeling is there. And when that feeling is gone, I will cease to love. Some will love so that they would get some form of reciprocation. They perform the act of love and either intentionally or unintentionally expect some form of love back in return. So in a sense, love can be used as a way to manipulate others. But when Christians are called to love, it's a very different thing. And I hope today's passage influences you to love as God had loved. So let's dive into the text. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. It reads, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you asking for you to teach us through the Holy Spirit. But may this not be head knowledge only, but may we learn so that we may have practical knowledge, that in knowing you more, we may allow you to show yourself through us for the furthering of the gospel and for the encouraging of the saints. Father, thank you for the gathering of the saints in this manner. For though we are apart in distance, we're drawn together in spirit. May we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as I read this passage to you, I want you to call your attention to the very first word in the passage, beloved, which is a form of the Greek word uh, agapetos. In the passage 
passages of scripture, we find that it's used by God the Father in describing his son, his beloved son, whom he is well pleased. This is a title that's addressed to the Messiah, Christ, one who is loved by God the Father beyond all others. Now the name beloved, when used for you and me, it's used as an address to one who is loved by God, Christ, and of one another. It is a term of affection. Here it's being used by John to address those in the church of Ephesus. It's used in a pastoral sense, that as a pastor who lovingly tends his sheep. You see, John is approaching the end of his life. This letter was written to his congregation. It's written from his heart to combat the false teachings of the day. And it's not too different from today when we're bombarded with different philosophies and beliefs, some even masquerading as Christian values. It's particularly troublesome because all this information, call it propaganda or brainwashing, is readily available right on our fingertips with our personal devices. Your pastors and your church leaders have similar burdens in their hearts as they tend the flock, not wishing for any to go astray. And so it is with the aging Apostle John as he penned this letter to the Ephesian church with much care and love. Now, as a reminder, John was one of the three in the inner circle with Jesus. Who better to combat these false teachings than someone who saw Jesus firsthand, who was one of the three who witnessed Jesus' transfiguration? John is also known as the Apostle of Love. He was described in Scripture as a disciple whom Jesus loved. At the Last Supper, as Jesus revealed that one of the twelve were going to betray him, we read in John 13, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. This disciple is John. At the foot of the cross, in Jesus' dying moments, we read in John 19, um, verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. You know, from the moment to her death, John took care of Jesus' mother. I was privileged to visit Ephesus a few summers ago and to visit, and during the visit, we were led to what was believed to be Mary's house and Mary's tomb. Tradition has it that John faithfully took care of Jesus' mother as his own all the way to her death. Now, getting back to the passage, you can't help but notice that John was speaking to his congregation, not only from a pastoral sense, but also from a tender love, from a parental sense. Nine times in this little epistle alone, John addresses the reader as my little children and my children. We see his parental love for them. John is the last living apostle, and his generation is about to end. There's a sense of urgency. Scripture teaches us to number our days, and when I read the passage, I can sense a burden in John's heart to not only love his congregation, but to show them how to love each other and to continue to love each other even when John is no longer present. And so John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the apostle of love, encourages his congregation to love. The first thing that stands out in reading this passage is the number of times the word love or a derivative of the word love is used in this passage. And 
Each one of these words are a form of agape. Fourteen times in this passage alone, the word agape or form of agape is used. The question we should ask ourselves then is, what does agape mean? Agape love is to prefer to love the other person. One chooses love to love. And this love is self-sacrificing, unselfish, does not seek for personal gain, but for the good of the other. In this passage, we see examples of this love from our Heavenly Father and from our Lord Jesus. For the believer, to do agape love is actively doing what the Lord prefers. And true love is always defined by God. And so the apostle of love addresses his congregation and to us, his pastoral love and his fatherly love. The next phrase, let us love one another, is a call for us to mutually love one another. The form of the verb here shows an encouraging type of love. That's why the NSSB uses the words, let us love one another. Notice that this is in the plural, let us love. So it's addressing us all as a body or as a congregation to love one another. One commentary also notes that the tense here also gives us a sense of a continued or repeated action of loving one another. It's not a one-time action, but a command as a way of life. Let us love and love and love. In addition, this love is a mutual action as it calls for us to love one another. So John wants us to see this as the culture of the Christian community, of the congregation, the fellow believers, to be loving one another. Why? Because love is from God. The source of love is God. This love flows from God. In the Gospel of John chapter 15, reads as Jesus was talking about abiding in him. And notice in previous passages, John also speaks of abiding in Christ. Starting from verse 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This, these things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Love is from God. Love is from Christ. Love is an attribute of God. Again, this love is an agape love, self-sacrificing love, a love that's directed to the recipient of that love, a selfless love, not for personal gain. Now, going back to our passage, so if love is from God, the connection here is, if, you lo if love is characteristic of your life, if this is how you conduct yourself, if you show love selflessly, then your love is the evidence that shows your identity as a true believer. For you grammar geeks out there, notice that we see in the English as two words, is born, is actually one single Greek word. The verb here has at least two connotations. The first is that it's in the passive voice. And when a when a word is in passive, it means it's done to you. You had nothing to do with it. 
So God is the one who has made you born again. It's not a result of your work, but God's. Secondly, it's in the perfect tense. And what a perfect tense is this. It's a completed action which produces results which are still in effect all the way up to the present. God did the work of your rebirth, and you are assured that it's still in effect to the present. The fact that you exhibit love in your life is the evidence of God's work in you. God is the one who has changed you with the rebirth, and he continues to work in your life. Next, notice the words, knows God. This is a different tense. It's a present tense, showing a daily, ongoing action. To know and understand God more and more each day, each moment. You see, when you love, you're gaining more and more knowledge of who God is and what he is like. In a sense, this is the result of your action of loving others. You continue to gain knowledge of our Lord through your actions. But John next contrasts the person who does not love. And this is typical of John's writings, as he would make a positive statement of what something is, and then makes a negative statement of what it is not. Here we read that the one who does not love does not know God. That is, the absence of love in an individual is evidence that he does not know God. I believe God is referring to the false prophets of his day. They profess to be believers, yet their actions prove otherwise. The absence of love in their lives speaks volumes about their relationship with God. The word know in Greek is gnosko, and it's to know through firsthand or personal experience. That's the sense of this word, firsthand or personal experience. And when you have a close relationship with God and taste God's love in your life, how can you not show love to others? These are the people who not only have knowledge of God in the academic sense, but knowledge in the application in the everyday life sense. This is one who has been transformed through the renewing of their mind to prove God's good, acceptable, and perfect will. Beloved, prove it in your lives. Because here's the explanatory statement. For God is love. It refers to God's essence, God's character. If you have an intimate relationship with God, his character will rub off on you. Like Moses, whose face shone after being in the presence of God. And everyone who saw him saw the glow on his face. In like manner, your lives will shine forth to the world as you spend time with him and his word and practice his word. But the contrast here in verse 8 shows the opposite is also true. The one who does not love shows lack of gnosko, his lack of knowledge of God through personal or first-hand experience. In verse 9, John starts with, by this. Now, the same Greek words, en tuto, en meaning is, and tuto, this, were repeated three times in our short passage. And in fact, it's repeated two more times for a total of five times as you read to the end of the epistle. I want to use that as a way of, uh, of breaking up this uh, passage. Notice the first and the third times it's translated by this. And then the second time in verse 10 is translated as in this. Not only this, but after every by this, 
is another word that's repeated. We translate it as either that or because. Each time John says by this, the word that or because explains his assertion. In verse 9, we see the revelation of how God revealed his love for us. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. That, and here's the revelation, God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In the next, in this, in verse 10, we see that love is a sacrificial love. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And the third by this, in verse 13, John reveals the assurance we have in God's love through the Holy Spirit. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So let's go back and break down verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. The word manifested means to make visible, to make clear, to make apparent, to open our eyes. What is meant here is that our eyes were opened when God revealed his love to us by sending his only begotten son into the world. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world. Only begotten means unique, one and only. What this implies is high value. Because God sacrificed his one and only, his highly valued son, to benefit who? To benefit us. Can you imagine giving up your most precious possessions to help someone else? Giving up rare and highly valued treasure for the benefit of others? Well, that's what God the Father did, so that we may have life through Jesus Christ. Prior to this, we were dead in our sins. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. This is sacrificial love. What he gave up is not cheap, and it was sacrificed so that we may live. We come to the second example of love. And here's the essence of agape love. It was not that we loved God. It wasn't, oh, because you love me, I will reciprocate. No, we didn't love God. In fact, we shook our fists at him. This agape love was a one-way street. It was God who loved us. It was God who chose to love us. And what did he do? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, the word propitiation has great theological significance. It's an atoning sacrifice. A propitiation is an offering to appease or satisfy an angry, offended party. Here we, we see that Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. He didn't perform the ritual for propitiation. He was the actual propitiation himself. He was the perfect lamb that was slain to appease an angry God. We are sinners at the hands of an angry God on the name of a famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards. Our sins are an abomination to God, and we must understand how seriously repugnant sin is to God in order to appreciate the great sacrifice both by God the Father in giving up his beloved Son, as well as the willing sacrifice of our Lord's own life. 
I don't know how to emphasize the fact that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins anymore. He, he wasn't merely the minister performing the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. He was sent by God the Father to be that atoning sacrifice. God the Father sent his only begotten, his unique one and only son. This is the definition of love, number one, that God the Father would give up his son who was so precious to him. Now Jesus was that spotless lamb, and only a spotless lamb could atone for all of our sins. The second definition of love comes from the fact that Jesus willingly gave up his life. If we could even scratch the surface of how sin is such an abomination to God, we might start to understand the amount of suffering Jesus had to endure to bear the sins of the world on his shoulders. Jesus did that on our behalf. Romans 5, 9, and 10 reads, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Notice how we should be thankful. We should be thankful for, because we were justified by his blood. Saved from wrath, we were enemies. We were reconciled. As we go back to our passage, we notice that John tenderly addresses his readers as beloved, saying, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Now notice, John has given an if-then statement. If God so loved us, then we ought to love one another. Let's analyze this sentence a little bit more. Let's look at the, the word so. Now, we also often read the word so to mean so much. And I don't debate God's great love to us. But the word so in the Greek, which is hutos, carries the idea of thus, or in this way, or in this manner. If we have this understanding of the word so, then John's intent here is to say this. Beloved, if this is the manner God loved us, and that manner is that he sent his son, he gave up his son to be this atoning sacrifice on our behalf. Then we ought to love one another in the same sacrificing manner. This is the Christian's testimony to the world, that we should love one another. By the way, the word so in this passage is the same word in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And it'll give you a different appreciation for that verse in that the manner that God loved the world was sending his only begotten son. This, is, this takes away the emphasis away from the selfish, oh, God loves me so much, to a focus on the manner of how God selfless, selflessly loved us. And it points us to God doing the work rather than pointing at ourselves and our own warped sense of self-importance. This changes the perspective or the focus of the gospel away from us, and our, and, but towards God and his divine intervention on our behalf. The gospel is about God's glory, not about ours. John shows us the glorious example of God's sacrificial love for us to follow in loving one another sacrificially. And no one has seen God at any time. And this may be an allusion to John 1.18, 
um, the, the Gospel of John 1.18, it reads, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained it. Same writer. Now, our word theater has its roots in the Greek word for seen, and the Greek word carries the idea of gaze on, to contemplate as a spectator, or to observe intently, especially to interpret something, to grasp its significance, to see or to concentrate on, so as to significantly impact or influence the viewer. John says, no one has seen God at any time. So what's John's point here? I think first he's making the observation that God is invisible to our eyes, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't exist. Let me give you an example. You know that your vision is limited scientifically to what we call the visible light spectrum. So we don't see UV, uh, infrared, gamma rays, radio waves, and so on. So how do we know these wavelengths exist? You can gaze and gaze and gaze your eyes on these different wavelengths and you won't see it. We can see these wavelengths or frequencies by the use of instruments. And we can also know the existence of these wavelengths by the results of what they may do. For instance, certain UV rays can burn your skin and long exposure will cause what we call sunburn. Infrared frequencies will feel warm to your skin. You can't see it, but you can sense the result. The point is, to a world who cannot see God, who has not tasted God's goodness, to a world who is blind to the outworkings of his loving kindness at any time, how can they ever see, spectate, observe God's love? Well, the answer is this. It's through us as instruments for God. We are the instruments that show the existence of God to a blind world, a world that is blinded by sin. This is the Christian's testimony to each other and to the world. If we love another, conditional statement here, if, if we love one another, then followed by the then statement, the answer, then, God abides in us. The world will see that God abides in us. You see, if we love one another, the unseen God abides in us, and we show his indwelling presence. And this love is perfected in us. God's love has been implanted in us, and we are continually sanctified by God. And this word perfected is also in the passive. So again, you know that the subject of a passive verb is receiving the action. Here, we're being perfected. This is not our doing, but God's doing. By loving one another, God perfects his love in us. Imagine the impact of what we have read so far. As one commentary puts it, God's love, which originates in himself, verse 7, love is from God, and verse 8, God is love was manifested in us through his son, verse 9 and verse 10. And, his, and this love is perfected in his people, verse 12. Next, John says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. 
Notice that this is the third by this statement. So we play, pay close attention uh, to these next few sentences. This by this statement shows the assurance we have in God's love abiding us in us because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't see this in the English, um, that there's a natural division in verse 13. And that word, that and because, is actually the same Greek word. That Greek word um, is uh, this word right here. It's, it's pronounced hadi. Okay, uh, this little, um, it, it looks like adi, but this little backwards comma right here um, gives it the H sound. So it's actually pronounced hadi. And it's unfortunate that we do have a similar sounding word in English. But this word here, hadi in the Greek, is translated as either that or because, depending on the context. The New American Standard uh, translated the first clause with that. The author says, by this we know that, that's hadi, we abide in him and he in us. This that describes a statement that's reminding the reader of what he or she knows. In verse 12, we were told that if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Here in verse 13, we're told that there is an assurance of this and the abiding is mutual. That is, we abide in him and he in us. Now, this is amazing. Why? Because sin separated us from God. We were way more separated than oil and water. We were polar opposites. Because of sin, we don't mix with God. We were infinitely separated. We are sinful, and God is holy and without sin. We can't even stand in the presence of a holy God and live. That's why this verse 13, the first part, 13a, is so amazing, that we abide in him and he in us. But because of the propitiation of our sins, because of Christ's sacrifice, we are no longer separated. Christ's work on the cross satisfied in every way God's judgment on us. Now we mutually abide, never to depart from each other. And we are assured of this. And notice the because. Because he has given us his spirit. You see, the second time Hadi is used in context, it's an explanation. That's why the translators use the slightly different English word, because. The second Hadi explains the first one. We know that the Spirit is our seal. He's the proof of God's love. The Holy Spirit not only teaches us, but he is our conscience, our reminder to do the right things. He intercedes for us. He prays for us when we don't have the right words. He's our helper, and he helps us ascertain the meanings in Scripture. And if God is love, then the Holy Spirit is the source of the love you produce. If we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, don't stifle the Holy Spirit in your life. Allow the Spirit to demonstrate God's love through you. Let us be thankful and that any love that comes out of us is evidence that God abides in us. And this is what the world will see. This is the source of encouragement that your fellow believers will have. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. 
The NIV, KJV, and ESV starts the sentence with the connecting word and. We don't see this in the NASB translation, um, most likely because it's bad English to start a sentence with the word and. Uh, but this conjunction is in the Greek text. And it means that there's connection between verse 13 and verse 14. You see, most of the readers of this epistle had not physically seen the saviors as the apostles have. The apostles had firsthand experience with the Lord. But that connection word and, which we don't see here, actually links the previous verses in this way. By exhibiting love in our lives, we allow others to see the savior of the world, just as the apostles who saw the savior firsthand. Whoa, right? Others will see God in us because God abides in us. We provide a living testimony of God himself, just like the apostles who physically saw the living savior themselves. This becomes an encouragement for us all to show who God is by our love. And this is especially true in light of the recent events in the news. But then you would say, but Uncle Stan, that's fine and dandy. And you tell us to love others. How do we love each other? I am so glad you asked that question. There are many passages in scripture that teach us about how to love. 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. You see this verse in weddings, both Christian and non-Christian. And I often see people around nodding in agreement of how beautiful and profound this verse is. And I know I should be focusing on the couple and on God during its reading. But we all know this verse is not about marriage. The fact is, this verse is actually in context of Christian to Christian relationships. 1 Corinthians 12, the chapter before, is about the body of Christ, the proper utilization of our spiritual gifts and the proper relationship we have with each other in the body of Christ. Then Paul says, I will show you a more excellent way at the end. And he launches into chapter 13. But I'm going to start from verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Beautiful, no? But let me highlight a few points about this passage. First of all, each one of these highlighted verses is not a description per se, or an adjective describing a noun, love. What, you may say? All the highlighted words are actually verbs in the Greek. Yes, this passage defines the word love using verbs. And as you know, a verb is an action word. This means love is about actions. It's about doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Here, being patient is not an attribute. It's an action of being patient when others provoke you to anger, when you're ready to lash out. For example, others might look at Alex and say, wow, he's a patient guy. But instead, Alex would be ecstatic to have, one, uh, to have others say, wow, I didn't, 
amazed at his action of patience when confronted with stress. This leaves him with an opening to minister to others or to share the gospel. Love is about doing. Love is about doing the kind thing, not acting jealous when others are blessed, but celebrating God's goodness to them. When you study the passage on your own, realize that these words are not things, a noun, but verbs, characteristic actions of someone in Christ. Each of us can do it. The problem is we often forget. We get caught up in activities of daily living. We live in a world of me, 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 and we're bombarded with ads and philosophies to please self first. We live in a narcissistic society and we often get drawn into it. We take selfies of how good we look. We take pictures of our food to show the food that we are about to eat. We forget that Christ teaches us to think about others first. We forget and we idolize ourselves we set other idols before us, and we're drawn away from our central focus upon the God. We please self rather than others. We keep rather than give. We take a quick verbal jab at the expense of others' feelings. Instead, we should let our actions speak louder than words. We allow God who abides in us and his attribute of love shine through our actions. And in this manner, may the gospel be proclaimed. And in this manner, may we encourage and build each other up. I leave you with some things I'd like for you to do. Uh, perhaps uh, ways you can interact with each other during your fellowship time. The first is to recall how others have shown love to you. Give thanks for how God uses others to minister to you and real, reveal himself to you. And then think about ways you can show love to others. Have some forethought or being deliberate in ministering to others in this manner. Remember, agape love does not require reciprocation. It's sacrificial. It's for the benefit of the recipient. And then third, I'd like for you to, to uh, take a stab at uh, memorizing 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 8, just as a start. And by keeping God's precepts in your mind, then you're able to be reminded to love when the situation presents itself. Spend time to find other scriptural verses about love to memorize. And then thank God for his indwelling and ask him to show himself to others through you. Uh, why don't we pray together? Our Father, we love because you loved us first. We ask you to teach us how to love. We ask you to remind us to love. And we pray that we be sensitive to your love and that we praise you for your work in our lives. We thank you for this opportunity to uh, encourage each other. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'll turn this time back over.